beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we? Outside of Christ, who are we? Before God had mercy on us, before God lavished his love upon us in Christ, who, who were we? In Ezekiel chapter 16, we have a picture of the origins of God's people, the church of God. And it's not a pretty picture. Ezekiel 16 begins with some very hard and unpleasant truths about what we look like when we are not covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Ezekiel 16 shows us in a graphic way the truth that the Apostle Paul teaches us through the inspiration of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible handy, Ephesians chapter 2 describes in, in New Testament language the picture we have in Ezekiel 16. What does the apostle say, Ezekiel 2? Uh, sorry, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a picture of what we look like outside of Christ. Verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God, when we were dead, he made us alive. Now, how did he do that? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel and you look at chapter 37, the prophet describes a vision which shows how God changes dead sinners into living children of God. Ezekiel 37 is a very well-known chapter, the, the vision of the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. That's us, dead in our sins and trespasses in the language of Ephesians 2. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How are these dead bones going to become life? By the word 
of the Lord. And that's what happens, verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, things started happening. The bones come together, flesh is put put on them. The breath of God comes into them, and there is now... There are now living children of God where before there was only death. And that, that, is what, that is how things work for dead sinners that are raised to life with Christ. It happens through the power of the word of God preached. Normally, it's through the means of preaching that this happens. You can see that in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bible, if you have one handy, and you look at verse 23, the apostle says this, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's what gave you new life. You, church, who were dead in your sins and trespasses, it was the living and abiding word of God that made you be born again to a living hope. And that's what we see in that reading we made in Ezekiel chapter 16. There is death, and it's ugly. This is a description of an ancient abortion. The child was birthed and abandoned. And in that situation of death and despair and hopelessness, what does God do? Look at verse 6 of Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. This is not a very attractive or flattering picture of who we are outside of Christ. It's a very ugly picture. It's a horrifying picture, really. The point here is that God comes to us in all the ugliness and the horror and the death and the hopelessness and the despair of our sin. And we have nothing to offer him. And there's nothing attractive about us in our sin, nothing. We're repulsive in the eyes of a holy God. And yet God sets his love upon us. And yet God speaks life. He says, live. There's the word. And then what does he do? He washes. Look at verse 8. Or verse 9, rather. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. So what does God do? He cleans, he washes, he makes pure what was foul. He covers nakedness and clothes dead sinners richly, with royal clothing to show that they belong to the very household of God. And look at verse 8 there. 
I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And that's an Old Testament picture of the work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in giving new life to dead sinners. God comes, and with the power of the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and in the power of the Spirit, he comes to dead sinners with the Word, and he speaks, and he says, live. And new life happens. And God covenants. God says to these dead sinners who are now made alive, he says, you are mine and I am yours. I love you. Love me. We belong together. You are part of the family of God. And then he washes us clean from our foulness. And he gives us the mark of that in baptism. And then he clothes us with the riches and the glory of Christ the righteousness of Christ. And he signifies that in the Holy Supper, that royal wedding feast rehearsal that we're allowed to celebrate. And so as we began reading the catechism, we, we began reading in, in Lord's Day 2025, 20, we were reminded that all of the glory, all of the grace, all of the goodness of God we're connected to that. We receive that by faith. All of this is only for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the gift that God gives to sinners so that we can respond to his love. And he uses faith to, to tie us to Christ, to unite us to Christ. And when that happens, when we're connected to Christ, like a, a wife is connected to her husband, when we become one with him, one flesh, then his death is our death, and his life is our life, and his payment is our payment, and his obedience is our obedience. That's the way things work in a marriage. In this marriage between Christ and the church, we came into this marriage heavily in debt. It was an infinite debt. We couldn't even pay the interest payments. And when we are married to Christ, our royal bridegroom, from his infinite resources, he wipes out our debt. There's none left. No more bills come in the mail anymore. No interest payments. No principal payments. There's nothing to pay. It's all gone. It's hard to believe, but it's true. It's all gone. But the debt isn't just gone. That's not the only thing. As husband and wife, as the wife of the, the great king, the church shares in all the wealth and all the riches of her beloved. All of the righteousness and innocence and holiness and goodness and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, we share in it so that we are rich in him. And so the most important thing in the world for the sinner is to have faith. To have that faith, to receive that faith as a gift from God which binds us to Christ, which unites us to Christ so that we share in him. Without faith, 
It is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to share in the work of Christ, to share in his forgiveness, to share in, in, in the payment that he made for sin on the cross. We need faith. It's a matter of life and death. We need faith like a person drowning in the ocean needs a rope. Their only hope is that somebody throws them a lifeline. They have no resources. They have no way of saving themselves. They need someone to to save them. And that, that faith that God gives us is that rope which connects us to Christ and holds us to him. So we need it. Where do we get it from? Well, the the catechism answers, confessing the scriptures, that faith is worked through preaching. And that's why the church makes such a big deal about preaching. That's why preaching is a, a major part of every worship service. Because when the word of God is being preached, the Holy Spirit is working with power and dead bones are coming together and flesh is coming onto them and new life is being worked. Hard hearts are being broken and replaced with hearts of flesh which can love God and and trust in him and and want to serve him. So how does it work? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2 for a moment, if you have your Bible handy. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul explains this. This is all from beginning to end, the work of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10 I'm going to read the the last part of the verse, 1 Corinthians 2.10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We can't understand God's thoughts. Only he can. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If God gives us his spirit, if his spirit comes into us and changes our hearts and opens our minds, then we can understand the things of God. And so Paul explains the process of preaching. Verse 13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Preaching is not some guy who thinks he knows better than the rest of us, sharing with us his wisdom and his life experience and nice stories about how he's been a great Christian. If that was the case, we may as well close the church building and stay home and turn off the the live stream. But true preaching is when an earthen vessel who is nothing is filled with the riches of the treasures of the gospel. And when the very spirit himself is taking the stuttering of the speaker and despite the stuttering of the speaker is bringing home to us and driving home into our hearts the power of the truths of the word of God. And that's needed Because of verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So outside of Christ, before the Spirit comes into our hearts, before the Spirit opens our ears to hear, our minds to understand, before the Spirit changes our hearts so that the Word can find good soil, unless the Spirit of God does something, 
and works in us, preaching is going to sound like foolishness. It's going to sound like a waste of time. It's going to sound meaningless. And so we need the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in order for faith to be worked through preaching. And you can see that in Ezekiel 36. If you flip back to Ezekiel and you look at chapter 36, you see how the working of faith is, faith is not something you can decide. You can't just raise your hand and say, I decide to choose Jesus. Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, come regenerate my heart right now because I've chosen to believe, so give me the faith that I need. That's not how it works. It's a sovereign act of God's mercy and love in Christ. Ezekiel 36, 25 And here God describes, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Look at the subject here. I, says God, I will do this. Look at verse 26, same subject. It's God speaking. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God must sovereignly work. Just showing up in church is not enough. We need to have the spirit present to change hearts, to work faith and to strengthen faith. There's a picture of that when Paul's going around doing his missionary work. If you look in Acts 17, 14, this is a special situation because Lydia was an Old Testament believer. She already was a God-fearer. And so she was right with God in Old Testament terms. It's like the whole jigsaw puzzle was done. There was just one piece missing, and that piece was, who was the Messiah? What is the name of the Messiah? That was missing. She hadn't met him yet. She hadn't heard about him yet. But if you look at uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 14, even that last piece of the puzzle which would catapult Lydia from the Old Testament dispensation into the New, Disp uh, New Testament dispensation that was only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, it's Acts 16, 16, 14. And so Paul is preaching away and there's Lydia there. She's a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The sovereign act of God as the word was being preached. God opened the heart. And when God opened the heart, the word flooded in. And there was that faith worked, which led Lydia to confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be baptized the sovereign work of God, and it happens through preaching. That's why preaching is so important. That's why it's so important to get our children into church and under the preaching as soon as possible, because they need new hearts. They need the work of the Holy Spirit. They need to be in the workshop of the Holy Spirit. So what is God saying in the gospel? Well, God's saying this. He's saying you're filthy by nature, but I'm going to make you clean. You have made yourself detestable by your sins, even to yourself, but I will lavish my love upon you. You are guilty, but I will make you innocent. You are a condemned rebel, 
but I will make you into a child of the king of kings. You are dead, but I will make you alive. And what is faith? Faith is simply believing. Believing that it's true that I'm a sinner. Believing that it's true that I need to be cleansed. Believing that it's true that Christ died for me, not just in general, but he died for me. And that my sins are washed away. And believing that I want to love him and live for him at every moment. That's the gospel. It's very simple. And every time you read your Bible, every time you hear the preaching, the bridegroom is saying to you, church, I love you. You are mine. I am yours. All is well. You are loved. You are welcome in the presence of the Father. Believe. Believe what I'm telling you. Believe what I'm saying. Believe. And God doesn't just say it, but God shows it. And he shows it in the two sacraments by which he strengthens our faith. And baptism can be compared to a ring on the finger, a sign of the marriage covenant. God has chosen us. He's made us his own. He's given us baptism, that that wedding ring which says, I love you, I am committed to you. I pledge my truth to you. And now the Lord Jesus has gone off to heaven to finish the preparations for our eternal home. And we, the bride, are left on this earth, which is still suffering the vestiges of the brokenness of being oppressed by the kingdom of darkness. And we live in a world of sickness. We live in a world of disease and violence and brokenness and hurt and pain. And often we wonder, can it be true? Will Jesus really come back? Will there ever be a time when there will be no more crying, no more death? Is it even possible? We wonder, am I dreaming? And then we look at our ring. And our ring is real. And our ring tells us, I love you, says Jesus. Our ring tells us he is ours and we are his. Our ring reminds us we have been washed. We are clean. He has made us beautiful and loved. And then we have the supper. And if baptism would be the the wedding ring given to us by our bridegroom, the supper is his embrace. The Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. The supper says, you are part of the family. You belong at the table. And the supper is the, the wedding rehearsal dinner. I don't know if we do that so much in Canada. I know in the United States, the wedding rehearsal dinner is almost as elaborate as the wedding dinner itself. And when God spreads the table for us in the Lord's Supper, we are rehearsing the great wedding feast of the Lamb. What does it say? What does the Supper say? It says, you you were naked, you were poor, you were destitute, you were unloved, but now you are the very bride of Christ. You sit at table with the King of Kings. He nourishes you unto eternal 
life. You are dressed in royal robes, and you share in the riches, not of some earthly king, but you share in the riches of the eternal king of glory, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are that church which is described in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, that church, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. You are beautiful and loved and dressed in the royal robes of Christ's holiness and righteousness. You know, when you read the stories, you read the fairy tales, you read the books, and there's this theme which comes through them. I've mentioned this before. There's this theme of, of the dragon representing evil and destruction. Then, and there's always the prince, right? And, and the children know this, that the prince goes forth and he slays the dragon. But that's not enough. There's, there's got to be a, a poor girl in there somewhere who suddenly he makes into a princess. And after the dragon is slain, then he marries the princess. And there's a great feast and they all live happily ever after. Why is that theme so strong in the old stories? Because it echoes the story of the world. It's an echo, they're an echo of the true story, in which Jesus has come to crush the head of that ancient serpent. He has redeemed us from slavery and from destitution, and he is preparing for that great final scene in which we sit at table with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we all live, literally, happily ever after. It's not just a story. It's the truth. And God speaks to you in the gospel, and God says, believe that. And God seals his covenant to you in baptism, and God says, believe that. And God feeds you at the family table of the kingdom, and God says, believe that. I am yours. You are mine. And we have a hard time with that. God says it. God shows it. God shows it. God seals it. And we have a hard time because we say, but, but Lord, but I'm not worthy, Lord. Can this really be true? Look at my sins, Lord. Look at my slowness to grow in sanctification. Look at my marriage. Look at all the things I've done wrong. Look at all the things I've left undone. Look at the, the poor way in which I'm raising my children. I feel so inadequate. How can I possibly be loved by you? How can you possibly take pleasure in me, Lord? I'm a, a weak sinner, and I, I mess up so much. How can I possibly be acceptable and be lovable in your sight? God comes to us Sunday after Sunday, and he says it, and he shows it, and he signs it, and he seals it. God says, listen to what I'm saying. I love you. Look at the sign and the seals of my love. I have loved you with an everlasting love and nothing can separate you from the love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. Just listen to what I'm saying. Look and believe that you are loved. That's what the word and the sacraments keep saying. You are loved, that you are in Christ and that all is well between you and a holy God. 
And this is the glory of the gospel for the church and for believers. But what about people, and we're getting to the, the question as a 30, or to Lawsy 31 here. What about the people who just are along for the ride? They're, they're in church, they're members of the church perhaps, they show up, they're at the sacrament, they're baptized, they take the supper, but their hearts remain cold and hard and untouched. Brothers and sisters, the word and the sacraments call for faith. And all of the ceremonies and all of the preaching in the world is not going to bring a dead sinner into heaven. God calls us to believe. The preaching calls us to believe. Your baptism calls you to believe. The Lord's Supper calls you to believe. And all the glory of the gospel is not for unbelievers, not for unbelievers outside the church, not for unbelievers inside the church. And that's why the church uses discipline. Now, discipline, people think discipline is for bad people people that don't match up to the rest of us. We're all really good Christians, and oh dear, you don't make the cut. You're a bad Christian. We want to keep the quality here. We're going to have to let you go. That's not how discipline works. Not in a true church of the Lord Jesus. In fact, somebody can be disciplined from the church and cut off from the church, and perhaps they're a lot less sinful than most of us. It's not a question of who's more sinful. It's a question of whether you are in Christ or not. It's not about... What you do, it's not about what you have to offer. It's about who you are in. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you in your sin or are you in Christ? And so discipline is for people who don't believe. They're physically connected to the church, but they, are, they do not have a living connection. What if, think about your body. The church is the body, Christ is the head. Think about your body. If your hand was only physically attached, but not attached in a living way, what would that look like? If your hand was dead, no life flowed through it. It was gangrenous, gangrenous. It was just physically there, but absolutely dead. What, what would the doctors do? They would cut it off because it's bad for the rest of the body, isn't it? So just being here, just showing up, just going through the motions is not enough. God gives us the word, God gives us the sacraments, and he calls us to believe. He calls us to flee to Christ. He calls us to turn from our sin. He calls us to embrace the promises of the gospel with a believing heart. Brother and sister, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. God calls you to believe now if you haven't done it yet. This is the gospel. God loves you. And his love doesn't depend on how good you are, how good your marriage is, how well you perform your duties, how well you withstand temptation, how well you fight sin. God's love for you, thank God, doesn't depend on those things. God loves you with an eternal love. God loves you in Christ, and nothing can change that. 
Nothing. That's what the word and that's what the sacraments keep calling you to believe. That's our only hope. To say, to confess, to believe, I am in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am loved, and he has made all things well. Now, Titus describes this very well, Titus chapter 3, and I'd like to end with that. Titus 3, just after Timothy there. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Titus describes who we are outside of Christ. Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You hearing echoes of Ezekiel 16 here? There's the filth, there's the shame, there's the washing, there's the love, there's the choosing, there's the covenanting. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's Titus saying the same thing that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 16, the first verses. This is what God says in every sermon. This is what God signs and seals in every sacrament. And God calls you to believe it, brother and sister. God calls you to surrender to his love. God calls you to stop trying to be accepted. Stop trying to make yourself presentable. Stop trying to fix yourself. Just give up. Surrender. Surrender to the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has done it. He has taken care of things. And he is taking care of things. And he is taking care of you. And he is making you beautiful, church of God. He is preparing you his beloved bride, for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen.